very warm welcome to you all, uh, our guests, uh, former and current uh, students, colleagues, and of course, uh, uh, to our distinguished speaker, uh, Nilüfer Göle. I'm Zafer Yenal, uh, professor of sociology at Boğaziçi University. I will be doing the organizational work for this new series of seminars renamed Sociological Imaginations at Boğaziçi. We wish uh, we could have had these talks and host you in our uh, Sherif Mardin seminar room rather than having it like this online. Well, uh, let's look at it from a positive, uh, more positive side. It would be impossible uh, to fit into our room with this uh, many people over 150 people uh, to that tiny place. Uh, before I introduce Professor, uh, Professor Göle, uh, who truly requires no introduction, since she's very uh, prominent name uh, for all those studying on and thinking about modern Turkey, and especially in its latest incarnations in the last several decades, let me say a few words about uh, this new seminar series that we are launching today. As we stated in our introductory passages that we have been cir circulating in the last several weeks on various media, we dedicated this series to exploring contemporary issues with scholars and intellectuals whose paths have crossed with the department over the years, either as students or lecturers. We believe that sociological imaginations become ever more indispensable in times like these when the consequential relationship between personal experiences and the wider society becomes more evident and requires rigorous reflections for the making of better futures. Also, at times like this, we came to realize, perhaps more than ever, the importance of venturing out. For this series, we decided to invite, invite scholars who are not working and living in Turkey at the moment because we believe this attempt to reach overseas and over borders is both symbolically and literally important at a time when we are largely constrained within the borders of our homes and largely constrained within the borders of Turkey. We wanted to venture far out, so to speak. It is in this spirit, uh, it's in this spirit, we as the Department of Sociology hope to create a medium and space that not only provides us with a form of contemporary public debate, uh, but also permits us to reflect on the present and past of its intellectual depth and diversity. From Sherif Mark, from Faruk Birtek to Ayfer Bartu Candan, uh, from Hargun Gügal to Cihan Tugal, Çağla Keyler to Diray Tolluoğlu, Nüket Sirman to uh, Ceren Özselçuk, Ayşe Öncü to Tuna Kuyucu, Bergin Tekçe to Alas Kılıçaslan, Perhunde Özbay to Taylan Acar, Dario Mizrahi to Bülent Küçük, and many others whose names all I cannot mention have crossed paths in the seminar rooms, offices, and corridors of the sociology department. From political economy to social anthropology, from sociological theory to historical um, sociology, there are many areas where this department contributed to. And we hope it will continue to contribute to the enrichment of social sciences, but particularly sociology and anthropology in Turkey and abroad, especially with the help of new faculty who joined to our department in the last several years. Taylan, Juho, Raja, Saigun, and most recently, Ceylan. Nilüfer Göle is our first speaker in this series. In the forbidden uh, modern, modern, uh, modern in Turkish, where she has grounded the debate on the rise of Islam in Turkey, and as she was trying to come to terms with the advent of Islamic and secular uh, women, she tells us that the book was her attempt to establish a link between private uneasiness and public issue, between biography and history, thereby trying to translate her own experience into C. Wright Mill's term through a sociological imagination. So it's only apt that we launch our sociological imagination series and merge her attempt with ours to make sense of our biographies in this simultaneous period of history. 
We are privileged to be able to launch our series with her. And I'm very excited, as you see, and honored uh, to introduce her. Nilüfer Göle was part of the sociology faculty between 1986 and 2001. Then she moved to Paris and began working at uh, EHES, School of Advanced uh, Studies in um, uh, School of Advanced Studies there. My French does not permit me to say this name in uh, French. Uh, she's still there and uh, currently running a research program on public space and democracy. Uh, Professor Göle is a prolific scholar, as we all know very well. We largely came to know her scholarship through one, whole, uh, through one, whole, uh, one of her earlier works, Mühendisler ve İdeoloji, Engineers and Ideology, in mid-1980s. There she was interrogating the genealogies of the idea of social engineering and its strong adherence, adherence to positivist thinking in various social movements with modernizationist agendas from left to right. She continued to write many manuscripts since then, which are translated to many languages, including French, German, Turkish, and Polish. Most of her work is devoted to a new reading of modernity on the basis of a broader critique of Eurocentrism in the definitions of secular modernity. She is the author of The Daily Lives of Muslims, Islam, and Public Confrontation in Contemporary Europe, published, this is the most recent as far as I know, uh, published by Zbook in 2017, Islam and Secularity, The Future of Europe's Public Sphere, published by Duke University Press in 2015, Islam and Public Controversy in Europe, published by Ashgate in 2014, and The Forbidden Modern Civilization and Wheeling in 1997. Uh, this was uh, published in Turkish by uh, Mehdis as uh, Modern Mahram, as we all know very well, I guess. This last title, uh, Modern Mahram, is probably one of the most influential and well-known sociological texts uh, texts written about contemporary Turkey. Göle, in her recent work, as much as I could follow, has been looking for the possibilities that the public appearance of Islam offers in disrupting the normativity of secularism of the European public sphere. She continues to try to see through what she calls the blind spot of public debate, that is the religious agency, that again, in her formulation, continues to fail to be recognized as, a, as, legitimate, as legitimate by modernity's doxa and cognitive system. With the latest rather sad developments in France, but also in other places, and with the public discussions they gave rise to about migrant cultures, including different strands of Islamic subjectivity, I cannot think of a more timely reflection on these issues. In her talk today, entitled contemporary agoras and performative citizenship. Today, uh, she will make us part of her search. After the talk, we're going to have a discussion session and we plan to conclude the event at around 8.30. Uh, Last but not the least, I would like to thank Turgut and Burak for helping us, uh, the sociology department, to organize the series and spread the news. Yes, um, now I guess I'm all done. And um, Professor Göle, Nilüfer Hanım, the floor, uh, rather uh, the screen is uh, all yours now. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you all, first of all, to my colleagues uh, at Wazich University and in person to Zafer for this uh, great uh, presentation, introduction, very warm, welcoming. Indeed, after I have spent 18 years uh, at the fac as a faculty member at Wasich University, so I'm uh, a bit, um, I feel this coming back after 20 years uh, with this uh, series of talk is really very, um, uh, stimulating because I really liked very much the title sociological imaginaries that you have chosen. Um, so I would like to start maybe a little bit around what we mean by sociological imaginaries because it helps us to uh, clarify the style of sociology that each of us 
is making. It elucidates the posture, the approach. I wouldn't speak about schools of thought because this is too rigid, but sociological imaginary is a kind of different style of uh, uh, doing sociology, practicing sociology. So that's why I really appreciate the title. So I'm trying to now, um, how I was going to do, yeah. Do I have a help from PowerPoint so that it might be easier for our uh, communication? Um, so first, of course, comes to us our mind just to refresh our memories. Zafar has already done it. Is sociological imagination, Wright Mill's book, who really defines this attitude of the social scientist as a quality of mind, the way we locate ourselves in, the, uh, in, in our times, in our societies. So there's this link between biography and history. And as you have put it so well, there's always this personal troubles that are linked to public issues. This is the way we choose our subject matters. And uh, this is something that we have observed, we find it enigmatic that maybe sometimes the books are not um, sufficient to uh, explain the events that we are observing, like in the case of uh, veiled students or headscarfed students, covered students at the university campuses, that because what we observe in our personal lives doesn't fit into the uh, narrations about modernity that is supposed to leave religion behind when we have access to education, for instance. So the sociological imagination is very much related with uh, uh, the experience that we are having and some kind of questions or um, uh, intrigues that pushes us to uh, do research. I mean, that's how I start my research when I do not know how to explain the events around me or the practices around me. I would like also to bring Castoriadis, who was very influential in my thinking when I was a PhD student in France, L'Institution Imaginaire de la Société, Imaginary Institutional Society. It was a critique of Marxism. And this also helped us to think of society through creation, through imagery, the, the imagery because not as predetermined structural forces, not like the perception of history as uh, determining the uh, stages of development. And of course, Alain Touraine, Production de la Société, Production of Society, is another book which gives place to social creativity. It's not the reproduction of the given system, but rather the self-production of society. That was also very influential in the way I understand uh, the study of society. That is, rather than looking at the reproduction of the structures, uh, trying to understand how the society itself is transformed. And there is, of course, that a very important uh, tension in social sciences between uh, structure and agency, between subjectivity and agency, how we take these into consideration, individuals and collectivity. And another uh, uh, point here is, which will introduce us to my talk, is social movements or protest movements. Very often in sociology, it, is, uh, it has been studied as um, something dysfunctioning will lead to the protest movements, as if uh, we, it is a symptom of uh, dysfunctioning, sickness of the society. Whereas in uh, uh, Alain Touraine's work, it is rather creative forces of change. So social movements contribute to the social choreography of change. And uh, Charles Taylor, more recently about modern social imaginaries, this li little book that you must know, he also contributed as a philosopher to uh, true um, uh, studying modern social imaginaries as disembedded forms uh, for the self-comprehension of society. So it helps for the self-reflexivity of society and the repertory of the practices, all the everything which is related with <coughs> also literature makes part of the social 
imaginary. So if we want to um, summarize, uh, I would say uh, social imaginaries in distinction from political ideologies, even you can think about the semantics, imaginaries is related with images, forms, so there's something visible about it, more embodied, tangible, and ideas is more discursive. Uh, very often in sociology, we interview people and we try to find out what they think, how they uh, develop their opinions, and we uh, sometimes disregard the images and the appearances and the forms. So what I'm trying to do more and more uh, is to bring them together and to understand the forms that also give shape to our understanding of social relations. This can be architectural forms, but also uh, the clothing, like in the case of covering, but also in other cases. So we should maybe uh, observe as well, not only listen, uh, the uh, social uh, actors. So this is um, one statement. Uh, secondly, we are used also to uh, study on, um, I would say, hard facts, like in social, like in political sciences, especially. Whereas when we speak about social imaginaries, for me, it's a, an approach to sociology which tries to seize uh, the, the uh, realities that is not yet uh, taken established forms, not yet uh, in the archives, but it is already in the making, in the development, which makes it, this more amorphous. <laughs> uh, a friend of mine, um, a um, colleague has told me, you are for amorphous sociology of amorphous uh, uh, aspects of social life. And I think this is really what I'm trying to do. It's not yet taken shape because we are trying to understand, some of us at least, intervening the moment that the events are taking place, the social practices are taking place. So uh, the, uh, in India, the colleagues call these this fuzzy in between so, so these things which, which are not so well defined, but ambivalent, amorphous aspects of social life that uh, we try to understand, I try to understand at least. So public sphere allows uh, the visibilization of actors, appearance of problems. It's a realm of experience linking personal to collective. This is the way I will define in first of all, because there are many other definitions. Public sphere is not uh, independent of the state power. You can also have the perspective of looking to the public sphere as it is organized or controlled uh, by state power, like the state apparatus, apparatus of state that controls by police, by other forces, uh, the public sphere. But what I'm trying to tease out is this uh, more emancipatory potential of the public sphere for experimentation and uh, the possibility for social creativity, let's say. So in that sense, I look at the public sphere, not from the perspective uh, of the state power, but from the perspective of the citizens and everyday life. Um, so I'm speaking about the visualization of actors and appearance of problems, which allows uh, the, uh, the, the possibility to change the uh, democratic agendas. Here, um, I would like to go back in time, that is in 20, 20 yes, 2000, and uh, would like to come back to this book, which is, uh, which is not mentioned because I have forgotten it myself. And preparing this talk, uh, I came back to this book, uh, which has been made uh, by uh, my students at Boisich University. That's why I want to pay tribute to this book. First, it is related with Boisich students who were not even at masters, but only uh, graduate, uh, undergraduate students of sociology department. And uh, secondly, the title is very telling. Islamın yeni kamusal yüzleri, the uh, uh, figures, faces, uh, uh, public faces of uh, uh, Islam, new public faces of Islam. So 
so I have started working on the category of Islam in relation to public sphere uh, as early as 2000, even before then, but this was uh, a collective book. It is written as the um, a workshop, um, a workshop on, uh, on this topic. So uh, I was trying to, it can seem to you very evident to work on Islam as a public uh, appearance, which was not the case because majority of the colleagues were working on the contemporary forms of Islam because of the influence of the revolution, Iranian revolution in political terms, in terms of the seizure of the state. So the category of personal and public were not uh, mobilized in the majority of the work on Islam. So that's why I really would like to come and to show you that it has been for 20 years that I came to the um, to new formulations of public space. It took me 20 times. I think it's 20 years. I think it's really very slow if I go back to 20 years ago uh, and come back now to, to my talk after 20 years, I can imagine that I gradually uh, formulated things that seems much more evident today, but it wasn't evident at that time. So coming back to this book, besides I would like to thank Tumitis uh, edition because it was a real pleasure, it's still a real pleasure to work uh, with, uh, uh, with, with, with my friends uh, Muge and Simi Sukman. Uh, all my books are published by them. And this one, they had this generosity and it was really intelligent to publish with my students at that time. So th these are eight students from Boazic University Department. I have even, I haven't checked the um, contributors, the authors for years. It is eight, <laughs> there's equality in terms of gender, eight uh, women and eight uh, uh, men in the, among the authors. And I must say that uh, with gratitude or with um, thanks to these young um, today uh, colleagues, they all, each of them became very um, widely well-known and had a very important academic career uh, following very different trajectories. Some of them are abroad at the universities, but I was su surprised to see uh, after so many years, 20 years, that almost all of them pursued an academic career. I have thought most of the time that we, uh, it's not easy for social sciences, even though we teach, we lose a lot among our students for many reasons. So this, this, uh, this book uh, for me uh, is a sign, is a kind of tribute to my students uh, uh, from uh, Department of Sociology 20 years ago. So coming back to the uh, notion of uh, public sphere, why uh, public sphere matters? Uh, we can start the question, why it, it matters? Well, first, we, we should think about it in terms of freedom, public sphere and freedom, because uh, we all need freedom and maybe public sphere is the uh, place where we measure uh, our freedoms. Uh, in a way, if we have the freedom to speak our language, if we have the freedom to uh, to um, uh, choose uh, our uh, lifestyles, if we can speak op openly. Uh, so it's an ideal type. As an ideal type, it's an open space. Uh, it's basically, of course, as you all know from Jürgen Habermas's work, Offenklich type in its uh, initial translations, an open space in a way, and related with democracy because uh, it provides a free and equal access, ideally, to all citizens for debating and bringing new issues to our agendas, changing our collective consciousness and having an impact afterwards on politics. So it is larger than the political realm. That's how I uh, will approach public sphere. It is a mediation between uh, the state and the uh, individual, but it is larger than the public sphere because it's larger than the political uh, realm. Uh, it's individuals, persons can bring new 
issues to the uh, public agenda. It can be about environment, environmentalism, as we know, feminism. It can be about uh, uh, def defense of animal rights. So things that really matter to you uh, as a person, you can bring it to the public. So you don't, you're not, it's not always a collective movement. It can be a personal critical thinking that shaped the public opinion, but it can also be through uh, movements. But what I would like to say, there is this movement from the private to the public. There is this move as coming out uh, and bringing these issues to the public arena. It requires some kind of uh, courage. It takes a courage to bring these issues, especially if these are issues that were uh, forbidden, uh, suppressed. It can be also ethnical issues. It can be sexual issues. Of course, the abortion, for instance, was a, such an issue for the feminists in the uh, in the uh, late 60s in uh, France, especially coming out speaking in the name of abortion rights. It was a very courageous move. So they were taking this very personal realm to the public one. And that creates a different consciousness and then has an impact on the uh, political sphere. So that's how I see the movement. But there's also a more, uh, a larger uh, maybe um, impact of public sphere, larger than politics. It is more in relation to city life, urban life. And here I would say, uh, in terms of social sciences, we have seen the separation between political philosophy, who is who is dealing more in relation to public sphere and democracy, and the and others, urban studies, art, architecture, more related with city life, and we need to bring those together. That's uh, uh, I would say my my preoccupation. So city and civilization, or Medina and Medinet, uh, we I can say there is search for truth. Uh, truth is important in public sphere. Uh, creating beauty, because always it was related city life with monuments, forms of architecture, urban space, arts and architecture, creating beauty, forms, social recognition. And that will be very important for us. Social recognition is goodness. That is how we get together, how we learn how to get familiarized with each other's differences. It can be social class differences, religion, ethnic, language, all kinds of differences, opinions. And I think that social recognition uh, is very important in the public sphere. And normally city life helped us as anonymous life to bring familiarization with each other. Uh, so we can have it in our minds, the relationship of public sphere with democracy, which it enables us to bring new issues and to break the consensual norms, to break away from the consensual norms. Uh, but also there is a larger aspect of everyday life practices uh, in uh, the city life. And we can use interchangeably the, the words, the concepts in semantic terms, agora, which goes back to uh, Greek uh, democracy, the forums that became also very important in the contemporary movements. So gathering together and discussing, debating, public square and maidan. I think we need to uh, bring in the notion of maidan into uh, public square. So you can keep this in mind. Well, in, uh, I can't see my, so, uh, but in, this was a description of the ideal type definition of public sphere. Whereas today in our societies, in the global age, I think we are entering into a third stage. If the first one is pre-modern 
agoras. And the second one is maybe the most uh, defined form is through Habermas, public space related with more discursive capacity of the public sphere to come to decisions collectively. In the third stage, of course, this is very summarized, I think we have to think about the third stage and we're entering into the third stage. And in this third stage, we can speak of the withdrawal of the public sphere, decline or retreat. I don't know the best word, but I think we are facing really the uh, um, withdrawal of public life uh, from uh, our uh, democracies. Um, I called it forces of corrosion. There are many forces of corrosion that describes the structural transformation of the public sphere today. I will start with pandemics because it is the collective experience that we are all having globally, each of us. Uh, the moment I was preparing this project on public space democracy, Agora Academy, pandemics started worldwide. It was like the irony of the history, the moment I was working on the return, the claim of public space in its physicality, and today we are totally digitalized, we are on the uh, virtual uh, communication, and we don't have any access to public spaces. And pandemics really made us uh, realize to what extent the uh, retreat of the public space in its most elementary forms, like working places, public transport, uh, restaurants, cafes, uh, praying uh, worship places, uh, cultural theaters, cinemas, concerts, all aspects that all that defines a society. There's no society without access to public space. So we all experience the deprivation of the public from the public spaces of the public spaces how we can imagine a daily life without having access to public space and without having the capacity to socialize um, a researcher was speaking about animals having the most important social drive is uh, most important dri in, in drive is sociability. And even for animals, without sociability, there's a terrible depression. So the, the, this uh, need to uh, relate to each other, I think we all experience the suspension of this. And there is no way if there is no space for it. So space, public space matters in that respect. And pandemics is a kind of experience that shows the importance of it. Secondly, terrorist attacks. We can also see to what extent terrorist attacks endanger the life in the public sphere because they target always the most important gatherings, uh, ordinary citizens. Third, this brings us to state of exception everywhere. In that respect, it's not only in the third world that we uh, observe state of exception and therefore surveillance continuously. So that also uh, contributes to the forces of corrosion of the public sphere. Uh, and fake news, that's another aspect that also uh, could contributes to the decline of public sphere in a more healthy, discursive, permitting healthy debates, because there is no access to uh, information. So, uh, I will continue further to um, describe to what extent today our life, public sphere and city life are no longer helping to um, create ways of living together. So the global city is related more and more with social segregation 
and gentrification. I think Zygmunt Bowman's work on mixophobia, I like this term, that is phobia of social mixture. So everybody is scared of uh, social mixity, social intermingling, and we try to avoid each other. So that's the, that's the reason why there is this territorial separation of social groups uh, in the city life. So rather than stranger sociability, and I like this term, um, uh, taken um, from my friend, ah, oh, I'll remember his name later, um, Michael Warner, uh, who would speak about public sphere as stranger sociability. So we can socialize among strangers. That's this anonymous life that permits us uh, to encounter each other. Rather than that, there is the mixophobia, which means we are uh, separated in terms of territory and we do not encounter with each other. You will see how, why it is so important when I come to uh, the other aspect, that is when we start reclaiming public sphere, how important it is to uh, have the conditions for social mixity. And the politics of enmity is also uh, as Ashir Membe uh, has named it, uh, today defines politics that polarize and uh, with the authoritarian uh, neo-populist movements trying to define people and extract other parts, uh, <coughs> so the other parts of the society who do not fit into majority norms. That's what we call politics of enmity. And Henri Lefebvre, the old book is the right to the city. So city, who owns the city today? Who owns the city? And I think in the Giza Park movement, that was the underlining uh, question. Maybe, um, was it um, outspoken like that? I don't know, but the right to the city. Uh, so this, did they um, at least the uh, desire to own the park, to uh, care for the park, for the garden is very important. It, it joins with this idea of right to the city because more and more the cities are taken over either by state power or more and more by uh, private capital. So that's why I would say uh, in contemporary age, in this third, uh, I will say, in the third stage, public sphere in this global age is retrieving, retreating from our lives. Uh, so, however, we have seen in the last uh, 10 years, since 2010, uh, a lot of, uh, from everywhere in the world, um, public occupation movements, and, uh, and this is very important uh, in my mind because not in only political terms, but it provides us to rethink about uh, society making. It uh, provides us with a paradigmatic shift that we cannot totally uh, uh, inquire in today's talk, but at least I can provide you with some of the intuitions or some of the ways that we can really start rethinking about uh, individual and society, polity and, uh, uh, and public sphere. So first of all, uh, this claiming uh, back public sphere movements, because I think we are really losing it in a way. Uh, first of all, is in the, this digital age, it is this return, return being back to the physicality of the public space, which is very important. That is, that's why we speak about occupations. And when you look at all the movements, it's always labeled in terms of the, uh, not the actor. We don't call it class, uh, it's youth movement or a given et uh, uh, ethnic movement, but it is rather related with the space, like Tahrir Square. Uh, I think it is the best example which comes to us, Tahrir Square. So this um, occupation is related with the physical public space. And uh, I will 
include another term, this habitation. When we look closely to these uh, movements of occupations, what is more interesting is the habitation. That is, people, uh, the protesters or the actors, stopped living there, turning it into almost their homes. We do not see any more private public distinctions. They bring their uh, private lives into the public sphere. Some of them start sleeping there, uh, start taking care of each other. We will see in, uh, in uh, some examples. So, um, so they start uh, taking care of the space itself, uh, performing together. So habitation is important because it's not like only protest political movements uh, going out to the streets, but it is looking to each other. So, so the social actors are gathering, assembly is very important, assembly, and then it, they are also interacting with each other. So the, another feature is visibility. I'm coming back to the issue of visibility because visibility is, uh, should be studied as a social relation of power. It is those who are sometimes not expected, not desired social actors who are making themselves visible. They are appearing on the scene. So it's already making yourself seen by the others or by the power is a heroic act. It's an ordinary, we can call them as ordinary heroes. You all know from Anna Arendt's, of course, book. Anna Arendt's notion of public space is very much related with this uh, capacity of uh, citizens to make themselves visible. You are not, first of all, citizen. It's on the contrary. Making yourself visible, you become a citizen. So this uh, courage, to, be, to appear, to come to Maidan, to come to the public square and to make yourself visible, I think it's already an act of uh, protestation, act of transformation, because it's a form of public agency. It's not like a social movement, nor as a political movement, but it's a, I call it public agency. Uh, I would like to remind here, take the example of Gilets jaunes les, uh, in France, uh, the yellow, uh, yellow vests, uh, because they also brought into visibility uh, parts of French society that we have totally ignored. So they brought to our awareness these small cities that were deprived of good life, deprived of public services, not only deprived of work, and they had to really travel from one place to another, that's why they needed their cars and so on, but also they were deprived of normal public life. And uh, so this visibility through Gilets jaunes uh, movement also uh, helps us to understand how performative citizenship transforms the agendas of the politics, because this brought into the agenda, into our awareness, part of the problems of the society, French society, that were totally forgotten or suppressed. On the uh, public square, there are unlikely encounters. I didn't know how to put the names, but not only undesired actors, but also those who are not um, maybe counted in the national narrative. So minorities, uh, those who do not recognize themselves within the national uh, community or the notion of people. But secondly, because of the heterogeneity of this um, social groups. There is a social mixity and I call it unlikely encounters or unexpected encounters. In the case of Kiev, Euromaidan movement, they were witnessing how people of different 
social origins because they can see from the cars the uh, they were all in solidarity with Euromaidan. They were coming together. In the case of Turkish, uh, I mean, Gezi movement, this unlikely encounters were even more telling and more telling. Like we have seen LGBTI with uh, football supporters and uh, religious, uh, the anti-capitalist uh, Muslims with more, much more secular origin uh, youth. So these unlikely encounters is important, as I've said at the beginning, it gives, um, it ends the social segregation and separation and polarization. This is very important. I had a, a witness from Egypt in my research, Mavi Maher, who is a very young Copt origin, Christian uh, Egyptian filmmaker. And uh, she was describing her life only limited to the Copt district, living within, among uh, the Christian minority um, between her church, school and family. When Tahrir Square movement occupation came, she felt herself being part of that movement and it changed her way of looking and feeling radically. She said, even though there was no longer hope for political change, her self perception in the society has been altered and it has opened another way of thinking about the society. So I, I found this uh, témoignage, witness, very precious. So how the public square itself, coming to Maidan, making yourself visible, uh, being with others, transforms the self-perception in relation to others. So it's not you are claiming things before you come to Maidan. On the contrary, it is being there is a transformative experience. Here it is, uh, so it creates an atmosphere. And again, another notion that we have to integrate into sociology. Atmosphere, it's a kind of shared atmosphere in the public square, which can be related with a sense of political aesthetics because they all share the confrontation, joy, they create a collective memory and they recognize each other being there or not being there. It provides another reference of social recognition, social recognition by action. It is not the social recognition from the state that I'm speaking about, but mutual social recognition and self-transformation in encountering the other. If I move uh, one more step, we have seen also creative accommodations, creative accommodations in terms of language, in terms of practices during Ramadan, you all have examples. And I think we need to bring those repertoire of action into our memory and uh, research agendas. So those creative accommodations took place among actors. It's not the recognition by the state or accommodation by state politics, but it is among actors. So there was a different kind of citizenship that was taking place. Here I remember uh, Theater of the Oppressed in 1960s, I think, Augusto Boal. It's a very uh, interesting book that is we can establish a link between being on Maidan, on the public square, and uh, as a theater, as a scene of theater. And most of the people were learning, therefore, through that experience. And uh, it was a transformative experience, as I said. So there was a kind of rehearsal of action and transformation uh, of uh, even their practices 
through performance. I said uh, we need to uh, therefore go more towards arts and uh, artistic representations to understand social life, uh, not art as illustration of our own way of thinking, but how to learn from it. So this film on Maidan, uh, a film made by Sergei Loznitsa, helped me to understand many aspects as well, because this is not a documentary as one would expect usually, um, making interviews, I'm coming back to the discursive with people, and trying to understand what happened before the culmination of events that caused the uprising or the occupation, the Maidan, Euro-Maidan movement, or in the, aftermath, in the aftermath of the movement, after the collapse, what happened? On the contrary, it takes it in real time. It's like um, in the sociological methodology, uh, participant observation, he locates his cameras and just follows the events without intervening. And I, I find this very interesting because what we see is life on the square, the life, the how, and they are not, the protesters are not protesting in the sense of, in the sense we understand by traditional political parties, actions, but rather first they have to survive and sustain their occupation campings and living there. So they have to take care of those who are injured or sick. They have to take, they have to nurse them, uh, take care of them. All collectively, they have so different tasks to live on the Maidan. So they are, it's almost like their home, foyer. And in this, this picture I like, but if you watch the film, you will have a better idea because it's minus 20 on Maidan, the public square of uh, Kiev. So they have to boil water and carrying all this big, heavy, uh, uh, heavy recipients to the public square is already a very big uh, a task. And so it creates uh, wood fire. And they would say, we recognize the others, those who participated to Maidan from the smell of the clothes. So we, that's what I mean by social aesthetics of recognition or political aesthetics of recognition on the square. So this created a kind of habitus, a collective memory, uh, and not only in terms of ideas and events, but also the atmosphere that is created uh, gave rise to that shared experience. Well, in the Turkey, I didn't choose a lot of uh, uh, examples, but this is a this is a one I like quite because it is uh, it represents the, the the gathering, social gathering, and uh, uh, performativity. And there are many others. Uh, I'm going to finish, and this is another form of uh, performative. Citizenship performativity. Uh, this is, uh, it is because we mentioned also terrorist acts in February 2015 after the Charlie Hebdo attacks in Paris, the first ones, and uh, followed by the attack against the synagogue in Copenhagen. Muslims in Oslo created a human chain around the synagogue of the city as a performative protection. So again, this is not declarations, not discursive, but how they take uh, stage and, uh, and, and uh, also in a multicultural society like in Europe, it uh, has been a very important uh, performative act. Um, I think I have to, uh, I'm coming to the conclusion. I will say common words and connected histories because I used interchangeably Agora, Public Square, and Maidan, and I remind you, it's always interesting to shift from one language to another. 
uh, unfortunately, we don't speak enough languages to enrich in our perspectives because languages have their different historical genealogies and meanings. And when we use a public square, public sphere, we have automatisms. We, we think we know about it. But when you shift to Maidan, you, you start thinking differently because it has a different historical legacy, uh, different urban construction of the Maidan. Uh, and also changed in time from an open space to the space of the uh, nation state, which of course controls maidans with monuments in a different way. Uh, the um, centrality of the mosque and then the uh, public buildings. Uh, so, but also in the Turkish language, I made uh, that taking form also, and but also hodri maidan. There's a challenge going to the public space so semantically we can link uh, maybe it's different genealogies but we can our understanding of public space in bringing together uh, different um, notions semantics and histories when we speak of agora and public sphere it always goes back to the greek tradition of course but maidan in an ironical way it is through the ukrainian movement that's why i brought it in more that uh, entered into the circulation of our in our languages so that, that is we don't refer to taksim uh, i'm sorry um uh, tahrir square in the global language it was tahrir square although it is tahrir maidan so the word maidan came uh, to the global language to the uh, usage uh, of global language through Kiev, through uh, Ukrainian experience. So sometimes the contemporary uh, movements bring together the historical legacies that were not thought together until now. So that's why I want to bring Agora and Maidan. And these histories of uh, public space movements are also has shown that the democratic imaginaries are not stemming only from the west but from all over uh, the place so histories are connected especially the notion of maidan in a in a in a, uh, in a way it it is a word which is used in uh, originally in arabic in persian goes back to even to indian subcontinent so it has a very large footprint and in the Balkan cities because of the ottoman influence in ukraine so there are these uh les plis de l'histoire the, the the history is uh, sometimes uh, forgotten in these uh les plis in these uh, uh, so sometimes it is open we can open it up and look at the um notions from a new angle, novel angle. And second question is, uh, okay, so East and the West, are these contemporary? What does it mean to be contemporary? Because most of the time, people would say, all oh, this public space thing, especially now we are all on digital, is a nonsense. It has been, uh, uh, it's not, a, it's a non-event. It took place, but it didn't change anything. It just disappeared, it evaporated. It's like it happening, it happened, and and then just there's no, nothing else so it didn't have any impact on the contrary it has been um, rather followed up by much more repressive uh, political uh, governments so it doesn't have any impact on the contrary one can say that the co true contemporary doesn't coincide with one's time there's always a kind of decalage a difference between what is modern what is contemporary and what is present sometimes we are only seeing the present and sociology for me the sociological imagination coming back to it is our capacity the quality of mind that we can see the germs of change germs of democracy uh, this is the notion that i borrowed from castoriadis for germs of democracy for him so coming back to agoras it will never pass away it will come back these germs so in a way 
agoras and maidams from pre-modern times are coming back in our age and maybe key to the modern, I think it's Agamben who formulated it like that, but so many others, key to the modern is also hidden in the archaic, in the pre-modern forms. So how we revitalize the pre-modern forms in the contemporary. So this is my last word. Uh, I think we can think of Maidan and Agoras as a heterotopia. This is a well-known notion of Foucault, that it's as a physical localization of the utopia. At a given moment, there was this utopia, ideal maybe, search for truth, beauty, and social recognition at that moment. So for alternative ways of society making, for linking the personal intimate realm to the collective public one. Thank you very much. Thank you.